Let's open the Bible to Psalm 74 this morning. We go back to our songs of psalms of lament. But this is a different type of lament than what we've looked at before. This is a communal lament. This is one where everybody in the whole nation cries out to God and says, Why are you doing this, Lord? What has gone on here? And the answer is very clear what the Lord is doing, and the answer is very clear why the Lord is doing it. Um, But they just can't seem to get through their heads sometimes. That if you simply obey the Lord and do what he says, then these are the blessings that he brings upon you. Now, this is the covenant nation of Israel talking. This is not Madison County. This is not Alabama. This is not this country or any other country. This is the covenant people talking. So when we look at psalms of lament that are communal or national, we have to kind of uh, decide how are we going to apply these. Um, because in, in our nation, it's, we're not the covenant people, uh, but we have to decide because one person's sin might be another person's freedom within our society. So I will not tell you how you should lament. Um, you should lament your own personal sin first. I'm convinced that once you have come to grips with your own personal sin, you will apply that lament nationally in the appropriate fashion. But, so I can't tell you, you need to lament this. I can tell Randy that he needs to lament these things because I'm convicted of them. Okay? So it's just a little bit of background as we begin Psalm 74. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's word? Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, that our eyes would be open first to the sin in our own lives and why we should lament this and why we should cry out to you and and where we have fallen short and where you have been gracious to us. And also, Lord, then how are we to live these things out in a national fashion? We'll see Israel laments as a nation. What are we to do? Help us to see these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 74 is a masculine of Asaph. Now, Asaph is uh, somebody who writes some of the Psalms. And just as, as background, Psalm 74 really is a lament about the temple in this event. And Psalm 79 is a lament about the people on the same event. Okay, now we'll not look at 79 today, but that's just for your reference. So Psalm 74. O God, why hast thou rejected us forever? Why does thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, which thou hast redeemed to be the tribe of thine inheritance, in Mount Zion, where thou hast dwelt. Turn thy footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Thine adversaries have roared in the midst of thy meeting place. They have set up their own standards for signs. It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees. And now all its carved work they smashed with hatchet and hammers. They have burned thy sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of thy name. They said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. 
How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn thy name forever? Why dost thou withdraw thy hand, even thy right hand, from within thy bosom, destroy them? Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou didst break the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. Thou didst crush the heads of Leviathan. Thou didst give him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Thou didst break open springs and torrents. Thou didst dry up ever-flowing streams. Thine is the day. Thine is the night. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast established all the boundaries of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and the foolish people has spurned thy name. Do not deliver the soul of thy turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of thine afflicted forever. Consider the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the inhabitations of violence. Let not the oppressed return dishonor. Let the afflicted and needy praise thy name. Do arise, O God, and plead thy own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches thee all day long. Do not forget the voice of thine adversaries the uproar of those who rise against thee, which ascends continually. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Turn with me for a moment. Keep your finger in there. Back to Second Kings chapter 25. The circumstances of the psalm deal with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. It is a lament about what has happened. The Babylonians or the Chaldeans have come in and they have taken over things and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And really there are two realities that that shape the Jewish believer's mind at this point. One is the Exodus. The the Psalms are full of stories of deliverance by the Lord referring back to the Exodus. Lord, you have done this. Lord, you've done all of these types of things. And, And that really shapes the believer at the time of the writing of this Psalm. And the second reality is the presence of the temple within Jerusalem. And that shapes their reality as well. It confirms in their hearts that the Lord is present with them. It is a tangible um, reminder. It is tangible evidence of God's presence within his covenant people. And all of a sudden, along comes a foreign nation and destroys this temple. And, and we have to say, but well, Lord... You promised that you, we would be your people. And that promise goes all the way back to you know, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And Abraham does all these things. And the Lord comes and says, I will make of you a great nation. Your descendants will be like the stars, like the sand on the shore. All of these things. And, and the other promise that he makes is that on, on the throne of David, I will have my person for all time. And the question is, is uh, raised here. Uh, well, Lord, how can you have somebody on the throne in Jerusalem, which is your city, the promise of, to your people, when we don't even own that city anymore? 
When somebody, an invader, has come in and burned it and destroyed it and killed most of us, taken the rest of us out into exile, and there's only a couple left wandering around Jerusalem, how is this possible? These are the questions, really, that are raised here. And as we turn to 2 Kings 25, we'll see some of the context here. We'll begin in verse 8 of that chapter. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, uh, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So you get the king's house, the principal's officer's house of of the king's court. Um, You get Solomon's temple has been burned to the ground here uh, in in verse 9 as well. Uh, Verse 10, so all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowers of the field. Now the bronze pillars which were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea uh, which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke into pieces (coughs) and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, and all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and the basins, what was fine gold and what was fine silver. Everything of import is gone here. Okay? They, they, the soldiers came in, they looked around, they said everything that's metal, everything that's gold, everything that's precious, we are going to take with us and we are going to use for our purposes in our World, Whether they took them and used them in their own pagan temples or just used them and melted them down, we don't know. But they took them, everything is gone. And now they lament, you know, you know the name Ichabod is the glory has departed. And we see this as the prophet yells out Ichabod. The, the, in a sense, the Lord has departed from us. With the destruction of the temple, it is all gone. The utter destruction of Jerusalem, the utter destruction of of the temple. Go back to Psalm 74. Now, why has this happened? Why has the Lord allowed a foreign nation to come in to his covenant people and destroy the city of David and to destroy the temple, which was this physical and very real manifestation of the Lord. It's where his glory dwelt. Why has this happened? Why has a nation been cast into utter destruction? And there is one simple reason for it, but the people don't like that reason. The reason is that they have abandoned the worship of the Lord. They have turned to idols. They have turned to other things. God's punishment for the sin of worshiping other gods is the destruction of the temple. Now it says, they killed most. They took most, the rest of the survivors, into exile. And then there was this small group, the poor of the poorest, who were left to care for the vine dress, for the vines in that area. Okay? Their continued disbelief Their continued disobedience to the Lord has devastating consequences. Okay? Now, in our society, remember, we're we're talking about the covenant people. But we we have to to discern what the Lord wants us 
to apply in our lives? How are we to live this out? Now, we are the covenant people, believers, but we are not a covenant nation. Neither is Canada, neither is any other nation. But the Lord calls us by name. And what are we to do? How are we to live? How is our nation really to, to function relative to the lives of believers within this country? How are we to shape this? Well, when do a people mourn for their country? When do we mourn for a nation that's gone wrong? Well, I don't know. Did Louis and Marie Antoinette mourn for their nation? Well, she, she was eating pretty well. And when they showed up at the door, she said what? Let me eat cake. She didn't know they didn't have bread. She was so far removed from that. Maybe when they were about to lose their heads, they grasped some significance that they had been living foolishly for this period of time. I, I don't know. Possibly. Did the people in, in Germany in the 30s mourn the direction of their country? Were they excited about the direction of their country? We can't lop everybody in together. When do we finally say that we have had enough of a national path that leads to destruction when one man's path leads to destruction and that same path for another man leads to license or leads to freedom? Huh? That's, that's the dilemma that we have. Well, those living in Jerusalem prior to the destruction, the majority didn't seem to mind the idolatry. They didn't seem to mind the, the sacrifice to other gods. They didn't seem to mind pursuing everything that God told them not to pursue. Yeah, there were some faithful, the faithful remnant, which God always keeps to himself, who did not participate. But what happened to that faithful remnant when the city was destroyed? They lost the temple. They lost their possessions. They, some of them probably lost their lives. Some were taken into exile. Perhaps some few were left there around the city. Those who, who saw the evils of, of Nazism in the 30s suffered just as those who thought it was great. When does a nation rise up and say our direction is wrong? It's sinful. And if we don't stop, we'll pay a terrible price. And it is God himself who brings that upon us. Now again, there is only one covenant nation, and that's Israel. No other country or ethnicity can make that claim throughout history. So that means if God is willing to let his own nation suffer, he'll let any nation suffer that turns away from the things of God. There were faithful people in Jerusalem. They died. They lost their property, as I said. Just like those who were unfaithful. It was national sin that causes the writing of this psalm in 74. It's a national lament. Now look at verse 1. God, why hast thou rejected us forever? Now the author, Asaph, is writing as the entire nation. Okay, he is writing the, the, the psalm here, the lament, but he is writing it for the entire nation. This is why have you rejected us forever? Your anger smokes against the sheep of your pasture. Will you be angry forever? Now, what is he asking here? Look in, look, look in verse 1. He says, why hast thou rejected us forever? Why does thy anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? So the first thing that we notice in the psalm is it's, it's okay to do what? Ask why. <laughs> okay, it's okay to ask God why. Now, you can ask me why, and I might give you the answer. Well, I don't know. Okay, why does this happen? I don't know. God knows why it happens. The question is, will he answer those things? Well, 
The problem is when they answer, when they ask the question why, that answer has already been revealed to them. The prophets for generations have been saying, if you don't get your stuff together and turn back to the Lord, this is what's going to happen. And they went, eh, you know, plugged up their ears. No, no, we're having too much fun. We, we like the way that it's going. It's all good. It's all good. Don't worry about that. That day is what? It's like scarlet. I can't worry about that today. I'll worry about it tomorrow. Well, it's tomorrow. In 586, it is tomorrow, and the Babylonians are there, and they're taking everything out of the temple and setting fire to everything. So it's okay to ask God these questions. It doesn't show a lack of faith. It doesn't show a lack of faith in our lives when things happen to us, and we go, God, why are you doing this to me? It shows faith because who are we asking? We're asking God. So with that question comes the assumption that he is the one who's in charge of those things. He is the one who is either allowing them or directing them in our lives. Well, we have to be ready for that answer. If we ask God why, he may raise in front of us the same thing that he raised here. It's your own fault. That can't be my fault. It's got to be somebody else's, right? can't be my own fault. The Bible is filled with questions. The question why. And I think that question is an indicator of faith because it drives us to the Lord. We're asking God why. I'm not asking my neighbor why. He may not know, right? You ask me, I'm like, I don't know. God knows. He has an understanding. He has directed these things. How is it possible, Lord, that Jerusalem is now under the control of somebody else and you have promised that there will be a, a, a person on the throne, a descendant of David on the throne forever? How is that possible? You called us your covenant people. You have, you have uh, purchased us. Look at verse 2 here. Remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old, which thou hast redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. Look what the Lord has done for this group of people. I mean, those words, that, that, that mentality, the redeemed congregation, a purchased or purchased congregation, a redeemed tribe, those words come right out of the introduction to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who redeemed you out of the house of bondage. Okay, The Lord has come and purchased us. So look at evidence. Uh, what does Hosea have to do to his unfaithful wife? He has to go back into town and purchase her back and redeem her. Okay, Christ has come to give his life for us, to pay the penalty for us. This, this kind of language is all through Scripture. And here we have a people asking a question, aren't we your redeemed congregation? Didn't you purchase us? What are you doing with us here, Lord? Why are we being sent into exile? Well, good verse 3. Not only do they ask the question, but it's almost as if they want to take God by the hand and give him a tour of Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. Turn thy footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Thine adversaries have roared in the midst of thy meeting place. They have set up their own standards for signs. It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees. 
Okay, they've burned the sanctuary of the ground. They defiled the dwelling place. It's, it's like, Lord, come, let me, let me give you a tour. What's happened here? Don't you, aren't you paying attention to it? Don't you know what these people have done? Now, now, Lord, we are your people. We are special. And you've allowed these people to come in and do this stuff. You must not have been watching. You, maybe God is not strong enough that he couldn't defend his people. Maybe that's the question that they're wrestling with here. Maybe they've got doubts about God's ability But understand, this is not a military or a natural disaster that takes place in the people's lives. This is a spiritual disaster. Okay, This has come upon them because they are spiritually corrupt. They have abandoned the things of God. Let's turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles 36, and we'll start in uh, verse 9 or 10, right around there. The people have abandoned the word of God. They've abandoned their trust in God. Isaiah tells us in chapter 47, Isaiah, that it was God himself who brought this wrath upon his own people. They're asking, why? How could this happen? He says, aren't you aware of what you've done? Don't you know that if you do A and B, you get C? I told you not to do A, and I sure told you not to do B, but you're going to get C one way or another. Second Chronicles 36, verse 9. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. I love that. He's eight years old. He reigns for three months and ten days and does evil. So don't ever think that your uh, eight-year-old is innocent. (laughs) And at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord. And he made his kinsman, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet who spoke before the Lord. So the first thing he did, he didn't take seriously what the words of Jeremiah were. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. Here is the greatest force in the world at this moment, Nebuchadnezzar. But he's nothing compared to the Lord. The regent here, Zedekiah, he doesn't turn to the Lord and ask for help. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. All the abominations of the nations. What was one of the chief practices of most of the pagan nations around Israel at that time? Child sacrifice. How many of you are firstborn males? You all would have been tossed in the fire, guys. Sorry. Okay? In, in an effort to get more children. We're going to sacrifice our children to this statue. And once we do that, we know that this statue will provide for us more children and greater blessing and greater crops. I was in Israel 2000, 2001. And 
And a leader of our group, with a bunch of ministers, he didn't tell us where we were going. He just, we just pulled up here in the bus and we got out. And we all went like this. You know, it's like the hair on the back of our neck just stood up. We didn't know where we were or what we were doing. And we walked over to this great big round stone, probably, you know, 15 feet across. And he said, do you know what went on here? He said, this is where they sacrificed their children. And, and it was still evil. I mean, something, you know, you just get that sense. It was still evil. This, these are the practices that were going on at that time. Verse 15, and the Lord, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that would be Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young man with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on their young man or or virgin or old man or infirmed and gave them all into his hand. He gave them all into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's just having a, a field day here, but in reality, the Lord has done this. And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete." This is the lowest point of the song here as we get to the end of verse 8 and beginning in verse 9. We don't see any signs. We no longer see any miracles. We don't hear the word of the prophet anymore. Nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O Lord, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn thy name forever? Amos chapter 8 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. But it's not a famine of bread. It's not a famine of water. What kind of famine is it? It's a famine of hearing the word of God. And, and all of a sudden, they get this bright idea here and they go, Well, I don't see any signs. I don't hear a word of the prophet. Now, the prophet has been telling them what is going to happen. And now that it has happened, they scratch their heads and go, why doesn't the Lord tell us anything anymore? Well, perhaps you didn't listen to what he said before. And we cry out, how long, O Lord? How long will the enemy go? Have you withdrawn your hand from us? And the Lord's like, yes. Why? Because you didn't listen to me. Because you turned and worshipped these things of destruction. These things everything I said not to do, you went and did. The people brought this upon themselves. Now they're crying out and wondering, God, God, what about your promises to us? What about your faithfulness to us? Have you forgotten about us? As if the Lord could ever forget about his people. Now look at verse 12. 
Yet, what do you do when you think God has forgotten you? What do you do when you have been disobedient? What do you do when you have run off and, and forgotten about everything that God told you not to do? You went and did, and, and now you're, in a sense, coming to your right mind. Verse 12, this is where the change comes in the psalm. Yet, God is my king from of old. You remember that God is sovereign. You remember that God is in control of everything. Look at the, the list here of what he goes through. Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou didst break the heads of the sea monsters. Thou didst crush the heads of Leviathan. Thou didst give him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Thou didst break open the springs and the torrents. If you saw a movie this week, that's what they're referring to. Thou didst dry up ever-flowing streams. Thine is the day. Thine is the night. These are all the things that the Lord has done. So, so here, the prophet Asaph, or the writer of the psalm Asaph, is going, we're dying here, Lord. Let's shift gears and remember what the Lord has done for us. Let's remember who the Lord is. In the light that our city has been destroyed, in the light of the temple is not here, yet who is God? He's the one that saves us. He's the one that intervenes and delivers us. He gives us water. He governs the day and he governs the night. He governs the seasons. It's like the words of Job. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. God is sovereign. We're dying here, Lord. Aren't you paying attention? Of course he's paying attention. He is sovereign. He's making it very clear. Asaph is making it very clear. This didn't happen because God wasn't powerful enough to stop it. This didn't happen because he wasn't paying attention. This didn't happen because he was caught by surprise by Nebuchadnezzar. What's he doing at my city? Well, it's too late now. I can't get to him. This is the God who divided the seas from the land. This is the God who hung the stars in the sky. This is the God who created the moon and the sun. He created the sea creatures. He created the creatures that are mighty on the land. This is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. And if this has happened, it's not because he's not powerful enough to stop it. It's because he has directed it because of their own unfaithfulness. Yet around us today in our, our society, something happens. Something, something bad happens. Something bad happens to all of us, just a degree we see a terrible incident and we say, why didn't God stop it? Why, why couldn't God intervene in that? Well, he could have. And he does sometimes. We just get upset when he doesn't. The city is destroyed. And we say, God, God had nothing to do with that. Maybe he directed it. I, I don't know. The psalmist is telling us it's not as if God doesn't know these things are happening. He's sovereign over all things. Over all things. God is all-powerful. There's nothing out of his control. So the answer to the question of why is not an answer from heaven. I really would have liked to have stopped that. I really would have liked to intervene. That's not what God says. That is never the answer. He says, I have directed it. I have allowed it. So the answer to the destruction of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem is that you have brought this upon yourself, your disobedience, your idolatry, your failure to remain faithful to who I am and what I have done, 
your sacrifice of children, your injustice to the poor, on and on and on it goes. Everything that happens you've brought upon yourself. And not only that, but it fits into my plan. This is really where it gets complicated. It fits into your plan, Lord? Yes. It fits into my plan for the one who will sit on the throne of David forever. It fits in my plan of the redemption of my very own people. It fits into my plan that you have been unfaithful and I have warned you and now judgment comes upon you. This is part of what I am doing here. Do we lament the sin of our own nation? Like I said, you have to define the sin as you see it here. Because some people in the nation will say, this is sin. And other people will say, no, this is freedom. I'm convinced that once we understand our own sin, when I have to look into my own heart and see where my sin is and what it is and how much God hates sin, then I am ready to cry out about the sin around me. Then I am ready to say, you know, why does this go on? What am I called to do to stop this? We are not the covenant people. But, as we like to say, we are the greatest nation in the world. We are the most generous. We are the most giving nation. We are the, you know, somebody's in trouble, we jump on the bandwagon. You know, I forget what the figures were, but, you know, how many millions and hundreds of millions of dollars has this country given away, like to the tsunami several years ago? You know, how many millions and millions of dollars are given to charity from this country? And most of that comes from whom? You know, the church. And what kind of church? The conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing people. We give far beyond anybody else. But we're not the covenant people. We are the greatest nation. And if the church within this nation doesn't stand apart for holiness, doesn't stand apart and be different, if we become just like everybody else in the nation... What right do we have to say? The Lord, aren't we your people? He says, if you're going to be my people, you're going to demonstrate it in every aspect. He says, I'm going to make you a light. What happens to that light if you go like this? Nobody can see it, right? Remember the song, this little light of mine? If you hide it under a bushel, nobody will see it. If we're to be salt in this nation and we lose our saltiness, what good are we? We're not any good at all. God has moved in our lives and changed us for lives of holiness. And he's given us plenty of examples of what happens when we turn away from him, when we abandon his word. The call of the church is to stand firm on the things of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we have Asaph crying out to you. Yes, that that first half is dire, Lord. Aren't you paying attention? Aren't we your people? Look what's happened. Why does this happen? And he is reminded that you alone are sovereign. You alone are in control. Lord, you have changed our lives as individuals. You have come down and grabbed a hold of us and drawn us unto yourself. You have breathed life into us. We who were dead in our trespasses are suddenly now made alive in Christ. And you have placed us here in this community, 
in this state and in this country to live those things out. Lord, we pray for the wisdom to do that. That we might not look like everybody else. That we would stand apart, stand apart in holiness and in righteousness and stand for what is just and, and do those things in our own lives and call others around us to do the same. But to do so in a way that is compassionate and gentle but unyielding on the truth. Move in our hearts, Lord, and make us wise. Wise for the living out of these days, for your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.